Welcome everyone to part 10, the final part of the Nolan Countdown miniseries. On this week's episode, the countdown goes back in time nearly 80 years to discuss Christopher Nolan's most recent film, the 2017 war drama Dunkirk. Before we get into that, however, with me today, as always, I have my co-host Scott Harvey and our Countdown series guest, Jay Habib. Guys, how are you doing today? How is your 4th of July? It was good, Scott. Uh, you know, definitely more low-key than usual. Um, yeah, it's crazy that we're here at the the end of uh, end of the series. I, you know, th- looking back, it feels weird that like when we started this series, we had no idea where we were going to be uh, when, this, when this thing ended. Yeah, the the amount of things that have happened between now and then, it's it's kind of crazy to think about that. It's only been yeah, like you said, four or five months or whatever that we've been recording this thing. But I've really enjoyed it. I think a lot of the films have grown in my estimation in rewatching them, um, and so I, I think that this has been a worthwhile series. I'm glad that we get to do these countdown series and we can uh, watch some you know older movies outside of just the the new releases that we're we're doing every week. I think they're they're good for that reason. So yeah, it's been fun. I can't wait to hear everyone's rankings at the end of the episode. Yeah, I think I mean Star Wars. I think we were like mostly similar. Like there was like one or two that like chopped and changed here and there between our different lists. But I'm I'm thinking that we could have comp- like very different lists with maybe the exception of the very top. I don't know. But uh, it, it'll be interesting at the end of the episode where, where things shake out. Jay, how are you doing? I'm good, Scott. Um, you know, kind of like Scott Harvey. It's funny to look back on, you know, all that's changed since, you know, we started doing this. But, you know, like you guys, the movies have grown in my estimate. It's been a lot of fun. Can't wait to see what we do next. Yeah, I mean, we're already talking about what we potentially do next, but who knows if anything is even possible if movies never come out again. True, I mean, I, true. Yeah, I mean, just to tease, I mean, I guess we, we've talked a little bit about a, a Fincher countdown because Mank is like almost definitely coming out later this year with Netflix. Like, There's no world in which that doesn't come out later this year, I'd imagine. But yeah, I'm, I'm doing well as well. And Fourth uh, of July here is caps a, a week of vacation for me. So I really can't complain too much and just hope that going back to work uh, is not so bad. Yeah, well, we'll we'll do the math to see if it's possible to jump straight into a Fincher countdown. I know Scott really wants to do it, and it would be it would be really fun. I understand if we well. don't, though, because I know we're we're uh, you know this has been a long series. So. Yeah, and and Fincher would be about the same length, right? It's a, he has ten or eleven movies, doesn't he? Yeah, maybe a little less, but yeah, around yeah. there. Well, we'll figure it out. Maybe we'll come back with one. Maybe maybe we won't, but we shall see. But in the meantime, why don't we go ahead and talk about the last film in our Nolan countdown? That's Dunkirk, set in late May 1940 and starring an ensemble cast that includes Fionn Whitehead, Mark Rylance, Tom Hardy, Harry Styles, Tom Glenn Carney, Barry Keoghan, Kenneth Branagh, Killian Murphy, and many more. Dunkirk depicts exactly what you think it would depict, the British and French evacuation from the shores of Dunkirk as the Germans approached, ready to annihilate the Allied forces. It wouldn't be a Chris Nolan film, however, even a historically based one, if not for a bit of a twist This time, it's that Nolan is telling the story from three interwoven perspectives. Land at the mole on the beaches of Dunkirk. Sea crossing the English Channel. And air over the English Channel. But different amounts of time elapse in each front over the course of 105 minutes. I don't know if a film so steeped in history really needs much more than that introduction, guys. So why don't we go ahead and get both of your expectations on this revisit? Because I think this is one that we have all seen before. Jay, we'll start with you first. They were high, Scott. I mean, not to you know give too much away, but I, I think this is a pretty good movie, and I, you know I enjoyed it last time. It's really not the kind of movie I'd ever find myself watching. Uh, I guess like as a war movie, like that's just not really my thing generally. But you know, Christopher Nolan 
Christopher Nolan can get me to watch pretty much anything he makes. Um, so, you know, I, I gave this movie a chance and, you know, I, I really liked it. I expected to like it again, you know, coming into the movie. Yeah. I mean, we talked at length, I think last time about how I, this was a movie that I, or sorry, the interstellar was a movie that I missed in theaters and I wish I could go back and see it in theaters. Well, I very vividly remember seeing this film in, in theaters, uh, three years ago, but before I talk about my expectations for it, Scott, go ahead. What are your expectations coming in? Yeah, no, I, I also saw this one in theaters with my whole family at the time and uh, definitely enjoyed it at the time. Uh, I think, Scott, looking back, you know, obviously we talked about this movie in some of the introductory episodes of our podcast when we were talking about sort of the awards season yeah. uh, for this movie. And sort of if you if you listen to that, like our reaction was, look, this movie is a technical spectacle to behold. Um, but. Uh, there's something missing on the the emotional front, which I, I mean, like like we talked about last time with Interstellar, I think maybe is is something you can say about more than one Nolan film. Um, and so I was interested to rewatch it for that reason to see if that was that was still my reaction to it because I haven't seen it since uh, I watched it in theaters. And I was also uh, eager to rewatch it because of watching 1917 recently, right? Like, which is yeah. a movie that Scott that we both on our first watch like immediately said, hey, this is one of the best war movies we've seen. Yep. It was obviously technically very impressive too, but um, also, you know, resonated emotionally from, you know, from the get-go. And and so I was wondering if like Dunkirk would be diminished maybe a little bit when I went back and watched it because, um, you know, maybe the, maybe the problem of emotional vacancy in the film would stand out even more having just seen 1917, a, a similar war film, which I think... Um, you know, again, had such a powerful impact on us. So, I, I, you know, this I was definitely interested to rewatch this film. Yeah, I mean, when I when I saw 1917, it really it really did. And this is not coming from our perspective. I've just watched Dunkirk now. But if I just rewound a couple of months and was like, when I saw 1917, it really feels like 1917. It's like, oh, Dunkirk, cool technical aspects. Hold my beer while I do something cooler. And so, no, I definitely hear where you're coming from there. And look, the that kind of is kind of my expectations as well. I mean, we talked, we certainly talked about it on the podcast and it probably didn't do it any favors that it came out in the summer of 2017 and not the fall or, or the winter. I mean, that's kind of the nature of the beast with the Academy Awards. Like if you're going to win, win awards, to, you have to be extremely good to stay relevant for that long uh, in, in the movie conversation. And so I, I kind of came into this with what sounds like pretty much the same expectations you did, Scott. Like I, I thought it was a really great film but something was missing. And, and that something missing was just like kind of the heart of a story, like the heart of a, of a story there that, that usually, yeah, it's sometimes lacking in Chris Nolan films, but the best Chris Nolan films, they have a heart. And I think that that's one of the things that I couldn't quite find the first time that I'd watched Dunkirk. And I like, ev I think like everyone else here, I haven't rewatched this since, since I saw it in theaters back in, back in 2017. And, and so I was kind of, I was wondering, same as you, Scott, that if, if I would find it, to be the same, to be maybe even more vacant than I thought it had been, or find something that I had missed the first time. And uh, I was curious what that was going to be. And I guess with those expectations on the table, guys, let's go back around the horn here and get your general impressions about whether or not your expectations were right. Jay, we'll go with you first. Sure. I mean, I think they held up. This, this movie is really, really good. Um, you guys, I mean, you, you touched on it, you know, that, you know, technically speaking, you know, I don't think anyone's going to argue what a good movie it is. At least no one, you know, reasonable should. And in terms of, you know, the, the what it lacked emotionally, like I, f I felt myself a little bit more okay with that this time than I did last time. I mean, I'm, I'm very much someone who's like driven by like, you know, characters in the movies I watch, like whether it's rooting for or against them. And in this one, like 
obviously you're rooting for them, but because you know, like the, you know, given the historical context, obviously, but you're also, I don't know, not given too much in the way of like, you know, what to do with them other than like, Hey, like these are the good guys and they need to get out. Right. I didn't really mind that as much this time around. Um, and it, it wasn't even like a huge, you know, sticking point for me in the first, in my first or second watching. Um, I, I think, you know, once I was able to just put myself in the mindset of like, you know, this is just to give me a snapshot of like something, you know, that resembles something that happened a bunch of years ago. And, you know, like focus just on, you know, like how tense it all was. Like, you know, I, I was able to have a pretty good time with it. Scott, what about you? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I'll I'll be frank here. Like, I've heard people say that the late era of Nolan, so like as in post-Inception, that he basically that he hasn't made a good movie since Inception. And I've heard I, I heard someone say that, in fact, this past week. Um and after we've done this series, I honestly think late era Nolan might be my favorite Nolan. Like, I think the last three movies that we have watched post Inception are all, you know, they're all bangers. Whereas like the, you know, the first era, the middle era, I mean, obviously there's films I love in every single era, but the consistency I think has been there in all three films in, you know, post Inception. And I think he does something different in every single film, which is I, I, which I really appreciate. I mean, you have The Dark Knight Rises, right, which is the biggest, most epic, like gargantuan film that he's ever made, um, arguably. Um, and then you have Interstellar, right, which is an emotional experience, like we talked about, that, you know, we've never seen from Nolan before. Even where, yes, yeah, some of the movies would could hit you emotionally, like nothing like Interstellar, I think. I think we can all agree on that. And then you have this, right, which it feels so removed maybe in some in some aspects from what nolan you know has made his name off of i mean over these 10 episodes we've talked about some of the most plot heavy films that like you will ever see right yeah. like with, i mean inception requires inception. about an hour of explaining yeah. things. <laughs> so. whereas this movie is literally just bare bo as bare bones as you can get in terms of like plot there's very little dialogue. I think David Sims had a phrase that I liked where he said this was this movie is like a novel with everything but the verbs taken out. Um, and and I think that really um, that's that's a good expression of just exactly how stripped back this film is. Um, and you know he he's not like guiding you like he does in, in Inception. You know I'm not saying that the movie. I mean I, th I still think that the movie is. Um, you have to work a little bit to follow everything that's going on, just like you you have to with his other films. But it's a, it's different because, like in those other films, he's spelling everything out in the dialogue. Right? There's there's so much dialogue and exposition and everything that is setting you up for for what you're seeing. Whereas here, you don't have that. Right? You just kind of have to, you know, let yourself be immersed by the experience. But yeah, I think this is a, a tremendous film. Like I uh, definitely it definitely improved in my opinion on on this rewatch. And I did, I did feel emotional at, at several parts of the film. I mean, I think the ending, I don't know what I was really thinking the first time uh, about not being moved by, you know, the, the ending with reading Churchill's, you know, speech out of the paper and everything um, as, as they're returning home. I think that that's a, an incredibly moving sequence and other moments throughout the film as well. I, so I think this really is a film that benefits on a rewatch because so much of it is, um, you know, you are trying to, you know, just follow the follow the story um, the first time around, and he's not really guiding you. And and it's not something like Inception, right, where you have to follow the story, but you could still walk away from it and be like, wow, like that was amazing. Like I've never seen anything like that or anything before. Like this is a war film, right? We've seen war films before. It's not like 
rewriting the book on war films, even though I think that it is, you know, immersing you in a way that war films haven't done before. And, and there are certain things I think he does with like reframing this narrative of like fleeing and failure as, Hey, this is a hero's journey. I think, I think that stuff is interesting, but like, you know, if, if you're coming away from the film the first time you might think, I just like I, I was just trying to watch this and figure out everything that was going on. Whereas I think second time around, once you kind of have the general structure of what's going on, uh, you can really dig in and, and appreciate a lot of what he's doing here. And I think there's plenty to appreciate. I think it's a, a great, great film. Yeah, I think there's really just so much to to love about this film. I I won't be coy about this. Like I, I think that even in the films that I've loved the most and now, and I'll go ahead and say that like, this isn't, this isn't my favorite Nolan film, but even in the films that I've loved the most, I, I feel like it, it's, you can find flaws in them, right? There's little things here and there that just don't feel quite right. I mean, like th this feels like a perfect film. Like, I just don't know what's like, what there really is anything any, like wrong with this film at all. And yes, maybe it doesn't pack the emotional weight of 1917. I'd still stand by that, but it does pack some emotional weight. And I think you're right, Scott. Like, I think there's a lot of mental energy it takes the in the first watch to really piece together the differing time narratives that are happening. Um, and a rewatch really helps you benefit that. I mean, like maybe I was slow, but I remember on my first watch, I wasn't even hundred percent sure what the one week, one day, one hour meant. Like the first time it pops on screen, like it takes you a bit, uh, I mean, it took me probably at least until it was like nighttime on the beach to realize that they weren't actually on the same time uh, timeline there. And so I think there's a lot of distraction there. And and I think that it does pack some some pretty heavy emotional punches towards the end. Again, I, I think 1917 is probably better still by my measure. But I mean, that's like the highest bar for for warm film for films that there is. And this film has like, like I said, I think this film has everything. Uh, except a female character. We won't have to talk about female characters today. Hey, they do have the women, women who are like giving them tea and stuff. Oh, that's on the true. Boat. I, yeah. I did notice that. I was like, <laughs> gosh, he's so bad at writing female characters. All he gives his female characters to do in this is just hand out tea to people. Yeah, Come on, brutal. Nolan. Brutal. Um, no, but this this film is it's like truly wonderful. I, I don't know how many more times in my lifetime I'll want to like pick it up and watch it. But if someone just asked me, like, give me just an absolute technical masterpiece from start to finish to watch like this, like this is it probably. And I kind of scratch my head. Like, I don't know how Nolan didn't win more Oscars for this film. Cause it, it just, it feels like it's Oscar bait. It's like a perfect film. I just don't know how it, it didn't win more over things like shape, shape of water or, or, or things like that. But um, that, that aside, let's go ahead and maybe talk a little bit more about some of those technical aspects that I was just referring to, because it did win at least one Academy award. I believe it just won for best sound mixing. I don't think I'm not sure if it won for editing. I don't think it won for editing, but um, it definitely won for best sound mixing and got a bunch of nominees. I mean, it's not surprising. I think we can all agree that while having watched it, it's not surprising that this thing got like five, six, seven Oscar nominations, most of which were in those technical categories. And Scott, why don't we go to you first this time? What do you make of, you know, the technical masterpiece side uh, of this? Since I think we've all called it that. Yeah, I mean, the. Uh the sound design may be the best I've ever heard in a film. Like to be, to be yeah. quite honest, that, that dawned on me this time as I was watching it. Like, so at certain moments I'm like, this is just unbelievable. What I'm, what I'm hearing, like the, the sound when they're standing on the, the destroyer or something and the, the planes come whizzing by or whatever, like this, that sound, like there, there are no like cartoony sound effects or anything, you know, like, uh, 
in this movie there's no wilhelm screams or anything like people getting shot on the on the beach or anything like that i mean this is like exactly what it would sound like i mean you you feel like you're there even when you're watching it on a computer right even when you're watching it on headphones and you're not in a theater with it booming all around you like i, I think that it's still like it's hard to not not feel like you're there like uh the score i think really adds to it as well like this is it's it's a strangely like dissonant score for Hans Zimmer, which I like. Like the the at times the notes almost blend in, like the motifs on the score almost blend in with like the sound of the gunfire and the planes, you know, and yeah. engines and everything. Like there's there's a eerie quality to it that I think we haven't necessarily seen from other Hans Zimmer scores, and I think it 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 bleeds into the backdrop of the movie really well, and and in a way that maybe again that that zimmer scores maybe don't always because um because he he can you know make a big big deal about the score sometimes i was actually reading something this morning about um the dark knight it was the ending of the dark knight and hans zimmer was saying look the the score is too loud during gordon's final you know salvo and like we, we you're not even going to be able to hear the dialogue and nolan was like I, I'm the director. You'll do what I tell you to do, basically, and like that's how he got the moment. I think, and I think obviously that works in The Dark Knight. But it is interesting to see here that I think yes, there are again there are moments because it's Hans Zimmer where the score you know really uh, flares up and ha has these big crescendos. But I think there are moments because it's Christopher Nolan, maybe less. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it it bleeds into the backdrop of the movie really well, and visually, like obviously, it, it's it's incredible. It really puts you in the place of. You know these people whether it's on the beach or um in you know it hiding out in the the, the you know the the ship that is the beach yeah. ship there on on the beach um whether you're on the deck with kenneth Branagh, whether you're up in up in the sky with with tom hardy's pilot like i, I just think that it, it is a master class on all fronts as as sean baker said when somebody asked him if they liked this if he liked this movie he was like you can't dislike a movie in which there's a shot that tilts over a destroyer like that that is pretty much how to sum up the visuals like there's so many crazy like how did they pull this off like uh, uh still shots like when you're in the air like i, I don't i like it, it, it's crazy to me how they did some of these camera techniques um and you just you can't do anything but admire the the technical marvel that this is this might be his most technically impressive film and that is saying something for for nolan yeah so calling a nolan film the most technically impressive is you know what you're comparing it against yeah jay what do you think i'll agree i think it is his most technically impressive and you know for a lot of the reasons that scott harvey just touched on i mean hans zimmer first of all getting back in the win column this week very happy about that um Dude, you all, know all I, he has is w's it's fine I mean, Interstellar to me, like I mentioned, you know, wasn't wasn't the best, but yeah, know. you know, he he's back in the win column this week. You know, the this feels so, so like you know simple to talk about, but you know, things like the pocket watch too, like that accompany the score, just you know, add that little bit of like tension, right? Which I think I read somewhere was actually like Nolan's own pocket watch that he just recorded and sent in, like here, put this in. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's the that's the part like Scott talking about bleeding the the score bleeding into the sound or bleeding into the background. And I think one of the things that even when you don't even consciously realize it's there, that the ticking of the, of that, of that watch in the background just adds an extra layer of intensity because time is obviously so critical uh, in and, this film. And, 
and that's one of the moments that is like just like classic Nolan right there. Whereas like at, at points you could, you know, you could maybe be fooled that you're watching a Nolan film. I think like when you hear that, you're like, oh, here he is. He's playing with time again, right? Like to, to some extent, the Inception score almost has similar ticking sounds at times, I think. And so, yeah, I, th I think uh, that that's that's some classic Nolan right there. Right. And yeah, I mean, you know, as always, found that really enjoyable. You know, and then, you know, visually speaking, again, we talked about this a lot last week, just how, you know, Nolan doesn't like to use green screens and minimal CGI and whatnot. Again, you know, some of the shots, some of the, the you know, the, the locations are like, you know, like inside the vessel and on the beach and whatnot, like everything they recreated, you know, using like thousands of extras and whatnot. Like, again, you, you just can't help but marvel at it. You know, like it's, he, he puts so much like time, effort, thought into it, you know, and like it's it's so apparent like it's it's like you said you know there's nothing like cartoony about it at all this very much feels like what would happen and you know you you almost never get that like in a movie you know of, the, of like this intensity i feel like but you know he, he did it yeah it really feels like what the mix of practical and cgi and cgi effects here it, it kind of just works again right because you know he'll do everything he can to make it a practical effect and when he can't he'll find some way to make it like a miniature shot so he doesn't have to use like full cgi on it and then only at the end when you're blowing up a beach in normandy with bodies flying everywhere do you have to use probably uh computer generated effects and it, and it works really well it works really well i think all aspects of this scott i mean the sound design for me is is definitely what stands out the most because you just like this like look this film costs like 100 to 150 million dollars to make i bet like a a disproportionate amount of that money relative to other parts of the film is made for like capturing the sound so like capturing the sound of you know the the fighter jets the i guess they're not jets the fighter planes uh the destroyers the you know civilian boats the sounds on the beach everything i mean i think it's just really awesome what he's able to do with that and i think part of the effect of this film although it's not technically like i, I guess it, it works kind of into the technical aspect but also is part of the story as well is just like how he creates this like fear and tension through the through the music and there's other elements of that that we're going to talk about later on but how he's able to generate this intensity and fear throughout the film uh when really the only villain here that you see on that you really feel and see on screen is time right like the the rest of it is all kind of in the background and you don't i mean you don't see the enemy ever in this film. That's something that we will mm -hmm. talk about later. But I just think that's really cool how he's able to still generate all that and and have it work so well and have it work so well. So I think getting in a little bit more towards the story aspect of it, I'd love to get your guys thoughts on the structure of the story because it, it kind of feels like a really significant part of of the narrative itself is having to piece together these three different timelines of uh, and settings that are interwoven together through throughout the film and understand, you know, is this too much? Is it distracting? Does it actually lend itself to the plot? Like, or maybe not the plot, but does it lend itself to the narrative or is it just there because Nolan has to do something, you know, Nolan in, in his film to make it feel, <laughs> to make him feel good about how, about him making a film. I don't know. I, I'd love to get your guys thoughts on this. Jay, what did you, what did you think of this, you know, land, sea and air structure with one day, one week, one hour, or sorry, one week, one day, one hour. I think I was a little bit removed from my first viewing, given this was my third. And I guess thinking back on it and listening to what you guys talk about, I think for a first viewing, it could definitely come across as like almost like, you know, why do we need this? Especially, you know, given how much we talk about Nolan and how much he loves to play with time. Like, I think it's, it's natural for us to be skeptical, right? Like, does he really need to do this? 
I think, you know, as always, like it, it works, you know, when he does it, I think, you know, it, it does add, I think to me, like it does add something to the film. I think on your first viewing, I mean, even like you said, you know, you don't quite realize what's happening until, you know, you're a significant chunk of like, into the movie. And at that point, you know, there's this like aha moment of like, okay, like now I'm up to speed. And like, I, I don't know, I guess that's a good feeling sometimes, but you, I don't know, maybe you want to, you know, know where you are at at all times in a movie, but then why are you watching a Nolan movie? Um, you know, I, I think, you know, we, we're always going to be skeptical, like, you know, this circle of like, you know, whether Nolan needs to have these like time playing elements. But as always, you know, I think he does it well. And, you know, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt that like, you know, this way, making the movie this way, it was just going to make it better than how he might have, you know, thought to do it if it was, you know, structured differently. Scott, you've been skeptical of structure for the sake of structure in, in past Nolan films. Uh, what did you think this time around? I think it's fine, and, and and I don't think it's really that hard to follow. Again, maybe I'm maybe I'm putting on my Little Women hat here and being like, the time structure's so easy. Like I don't understand how people can't follow it. But um, I think it's easy to follow once you understand what's going on. I think it's just not immediately yeah. apparent what's going well, on. That was my. I thing. think I think that the Killian Murphy when when you have the flashback scene involving Killian Murphy's yeah, character, yeah, I think yeah. that's where it's like, okay, if you if you haven't gotten it up to this point, you should get it now. Agreed. Um, yeah. Yeah, but but I think it works because it gives you a better sense of the journey, particularly for the the soldiers on the ground, right? Because obviously they're they're starting far back, and and how far that they have come to 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 the point where they you know finally do escape the beaches. Because I mean, you know, we see at the start of the film they're being shot at. Then there are multiple different times where they try to get on various ships. Like they get on the hospitality ship and they're the hospital ship. They're thrown off. They they get in the the bottom of the the boat and people start shooting at them they have to get out like you get a, a really good sense of like the the desperation that they begin to feel just there again and again they just they end up back on the beach every single time and you know we see the effect that it has on them we see like you know at one point the one guy who just runs out into the the sea and or the ocean and basically drowns himself i guess is, is what you're meant to believe there but um you know, you, you really, uh, you, you really begin to feel the the journey and again, the desperation. And I think that makes, I think that plays into the emotional element of the movie, right? Because when they are finally rescued, um, and when that, when they are, are finally able to get off the beaches when it felt like, you know, they were basically doomed. Um, you know, it, it feels like you've been through a lot with them. And so you feel a lot of, um, solace. You, you take solace with them when, when they, you know, when they are finally able to, to escape. So I think it works for that reason. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where I think we've laid it out here. So no reason to really repeat it too much, but it's just like it's not hard to follow once you actually understand the gimmick, right? If that's the right way to describe it. And I think you're right. Like it, it'd be hard to tell the story the way Nolan wants to, interweaving it throughout the whole narrative, um, when you have to really back up a full week's time for the people on the on the ground, right? Like. I guess you could show like Mark Rylance and Tom Glencarney and Barry Keown for a week and Tom Hardy for a week. Like you could do that, but it would just feel so out of place in the mm -hmm. in a film that's supposed to keep you in the moment, right? Talk talk about having cuts that would take you out of the take you out of the moment on the on the beach where you have this really intense like fight for survival. You know, you need your, the rest of your characters in the other theaters there to be in that same moment or at least sharing that experience. And and this is a shorter film than almost any of his others. So um, I, I like following might be the one exception, obviously. But um, 
I think that that, that also works. Like it, I, I think the film works that it's, it is leaner because like it just starts, right? Like there, there is no, you don't have any downtime in the movie. It starts and, and you know, they're getting shot at, right? Like, so, so I think be, because he staggers it out like that, he's able to keep the action, um, you know, sustained throughout the entire movie where instead of having, like you said, these, these dead periods, maybe if we're focusing on Mark Rylance's character a week before he ever even sets out. Yeah. And so for, for that reason, if you are going to show, if you do want to make all three settings uh, like important throughout the film, then you have to do that gimmick. And I think he plays it off really well and it, and it works well. And like I said, once, once you understand what's going on, it's not hard. It's not hard to follow um, and, and becomes fairly clear over time as, as I mean, essentially as they converge, right. As the timelines converge, <laughs> it's yeah. always going to become clear what, what was going on anyway, but moving on from that and still, I guess using the sort of land, sea and air structure, would love to talk a little bit about the cast. I mean, you have all these kind of no name, like no, no name actors with the exception of Harry Styles, who Chris Nolan didn't know was Harry Styles, <laughs> didn't know who he was when he cast him. So to Chris Nolan, he was a no name uh, out, on, out on the land area. Of course you have, you know, more well-known actors who are in these sort of leadership roles like Kenneth Branagh or Brian Darcy James, who are playing like sort of the lieutenant of the army and the commander of the Navy up on the beach. But the rest of the soldiers that you see, I mean, I think you'd be forgiven for not knowing any of them probably except Harry Styles. And that is obviously very intentional because if you go into the other theaters, you have someone like Mark Rylance, you know, who's captaining this boat, the, the Moonstone uh, across the channel. And you got Tom Hardy, uh, up in the air and you even have Michael Caine doing a voice cameo as Fortis leader who I thought was funny like he's not actually credited in the film but it is his voice uh, who's the third pilot who goes down really early uh, so he film. is in it he is we in the, he is, yeah he is in the film technically although I, I mean like he's in it's, it's like I guess it's like being in a Star Wars film where you're just the voice of a stormtrooper like or, I guess you're in the film I don't know if you're actually gonna get a credit yeah. for it or not but uh, yeah he is technically in the film which I thought was funny so guys those are the th I think we want to cover all three of the different departments here. And I'd, I'd group Jack Loudon in with, with the air uh, contingent with Tom Hardy, even though he does end up also uh, on the boat. But where do you guys want to start first guys? I'll let you, I'll let you pick Jay. Where do you want to start? Uh, why don't we start in the air? Uh, Let's do it. Just given that it's the shortest and you know, Tom, you know, Tom Hardy, Hardy uh, likes uh, his face a, coverings. Yep. I was about to say Tom Hardy uh, wearing a face covering with a slightly distorted voice. I mean, I'm, I'm here for it. Although Tom Hardy in a war movie is also starting to border on cliche, isn't it? I think this is his third war movie, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you count Dark Knight Rises as a war movie? <laughs> no, I'm not counting Dark Knight Rises as a war movie. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, that that was the part of it from the beginning, you know, I, I found the hardest to engage with. Uh, in the beginning, again, just because you're not entirely sure how it's like, you know, playing into what's happening on land and on sea. Uh, you know, from the get go, because on land, you know, you're like, oh, like, you know, we have these soldiers and they're trying to get out. And in the, in the sky, all of a sudden, you know, it's like, all right, like we're in the sky, we're flying to Dunkirk. One guy just got shot down and Tom Hardy is like, lose is not losing fuel, but unsure how much fuel he has left. Um, but of course, like, you know, as the movie goes on, like, you know, you, you become more and more engaged again, like, you don't, and, and I feel, I feel like I'll say this about, you know, the other two parts, uh, land and sea as well, but I feel like to me, you know, like the, the all of the character performances are all good. Like there's nothing really bad, right? Like they they really do in my mind like serve to just tell the story more than just to like stand out, if that makes any sense. Like, you know, because we we were talking about, you know, the lack of like emotion and character connection, you know, it's like 
okay, like, you know, Tom, what Tom Hardy does in the movie is like ultimately super important. And like, I, you know, I really feel for him at the end, right. When he's standing on the beach and ultimately being taken uh, captive, you know, like, like I have nothing bad to say, you know, about his performance in the movie, but ultimately it's like, you know, if I have to very much like stay within like the mindset of like remembering, you know, like what, like, this is something that happened, you know? And like, you know, we like this guy, you know, is trying to get hundreds of thousands of people like off this boat. And for that, you know, I'm like moved when he's, you know, ultimately taken at the end, not so much because of like, you know, because Tom Hardy like gave me an emotionally gripping performance that I'm like, no, like why is Tom Hardy being captured? You know, does that make any sense? Yeah. I think yeah. So. No, I, I agree. Cause I think that the story of this character is compelling and, and that's what, that's what you're speaking to. I don't think there's that much to the performance to be quite honest. I mean, he doesn't have that much dialogue. We never, really see his face until like the very end so there's not much like facial expression acting for him to do there, there's really not much to it and I, so i think that he's fine right he he succeeds in in what he does um you know what what he is asked to do and in, in what is obviously a very minimal sort of stripped back role um and i i think that's the same probably for for most of the cast like i i like it, it, to shift gears, like I like Mark Rylance's performance as the boat captain. I think he's he's pretty solid as um, you know this guy who's determined to to get there to the beach and determined to rescue as many people as he can. Um, you know, re regardless of of what it costs, right? And obviously um, Barry Keegan's character, who is someone that was close to him, I guess, uh, you know, passes away ultimately. So he. Had, he has to make a sacrifice there. And, and I, you know, I like that moment at the end where they're looking at the newspaper and seeing him honored. I, I, I think that Kenneth Branagh, it's one of his most incredible performances in the sense that he, I've never seen him this restrained. Like, yeah, I, I he don't doesn't know go how, off at all. I don't know how Nolan managed to pull it off to like, get him to not be like super like blustery and like giving monologues and stuff. No, like he totally that. told him, he's like, look, my next movie, you're going to be able to do it. In. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're going to do, uh, <laughs> that's true. Cause he's going to be playing a Russian guy or whatever in tenant. Um, yeah. yeah. So maybe, maybe that was the, the devil's bargain that he cut, but um, mm. yeah, no, I, I think, I think he saw it too. I mean, you know, I, I, my favorite exchange of dialogue there, I mean, not, there's many, but when they're looking out and, and, you know, he says, what do you see? And, and Kenneth Branagh says home and then you get all of the citizen ship ships coming in. I mean, I think that's a really like spine tingling moment in the movie. Um, and, and so I think Branagh's performance is nice and, and measured at, at, as is everyone here. I think Harry Styles is a little bit of a D bag. His character is, but um, the way, he, the way he goes after the, uh, the French guy in the, in the ship is, is a little, but like, again, because of, because you see the desperation, like you, you, get the sense of how um you know eager these people are to get off uh, of the beaches like you know what's at stake here um i guess you do understand to some extent why he would be like he doesn't want to take any chances right that um look we we make it off of the beach and then we somehow end up getting killed by a spy or something like that would be the the worst way to to go after all of this um so i i, I like that almost like Hitchcockian type sequence that is in in the uh, you know in the in this beached boat there um, with with the Germans you know uh, doing target practice at them. I think that 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 is one of the most suspenseful sequences in the movie, and it, it works really well. So performances across the board, they do what they're asked to do. 
yeah, I think that's the thing about the film is that it feels like everyone sticks to the mission, does the, does their task and, and gets the job done. I mean, even like talk about just pure cameo performances. I mean, you, you got John, like, is it John Nolan or whatever, like comes up in the first film and following gets this like cameo as yeah. this detective or police officer. And he gets plugged in on his most recent film as well as the as the blind man at the end of the movie who's handing out blankets, um, which I thought was. So all that like that was one like that was like the first one where I was like oh here there is an emotional hook to this film saying you know telling all these guys that surviving surviving was enough uh, and so yeah I think across the board from even the most brief cameos like you know John Nolan uh, or you know the most probably the most involved performances from Fionn Whitehead right like the guy's unknown they de- he doesn't really have much uh, dialogue to show you he can like act in like a traditional sense right he has to do it all non verbally pretty much I mean the guy probably has like. 10 to 15 lines over the course of the whole film. It feels like he's like hardly ever talks and he does it really well, right? Like you, it's very believable. Maybe it's just the nature of this particular uh, story or, or, or character, but he plays it really well. And uh, I agree with probably Christopher Nolan and his casting directors that I don't know if you'd cast in 2017, who, who would have been like the young star to cast with, I guess Timothy Chalamet probably would have been a little too early for him. But if you cast Lucas someone like Hedges, that, yeah. Luke, yeah, Lucas Hedges. Yeah. You could definitely put him in, like, it just would have felt weird. Probably like even seeing Harry Styles is a little bit weird, but the fact that he's not the main character, I think helps with that a, a little bit, but across the board, I think I only have really good things to say. And so going back to talking about this film being a perfect film, I just don't think anyone really sets a foot wrong. Even, uh, in, in this cast, even though they're not, again, to your point, Scott, maybe they're not really asked to do to do the world. They're not asked to do something like Matthew McConaughey's asked to do, or Anne Hathaway's asked to do, Interstellar, or Christian Bale's asked to do in The Dark Knight, or Heath Ledger, things like that. Like these are all sort of very, um, I guess, conservative performances in terms of in terms of the scope, because the the movie is like the like the setting and the and the effects and the technical pieces are are what's going to completely grab your attention and. These characters are here to grab you in the quieter moments, which is why it's really important that yes, there's no, there's no, you know, t- like like shifting away from the action. Every everything's taking place either in land, sea, or air, but everything has some sort of tension, either grand or minor. And I think it's Im- important in those minor tension moments, and you know, whether it's just them crossing the channel on the boat and having these like tense conversations, especially after they take Killian Murphy on board. Um, it's on the beach when they're just having these conversations with these people who are marching towards the boat or in the boat, right? Like it's these smaller moments where, you know, like danger and disaster is like lurking just a couple minutes away, probably that you have to, you know, get in. Inve- they, they these characters have to get you invested in them. And I think all of them do that. All right. Moving on to the plot. And I think the best place to start when it comes to the plot is just something that you mentioned earlier, Scott, and that's, the sort of non-traditional nature of this as a war film. I mean, yeah, we've talked about the story structure being something that makes this film different uh, from its peers, maybe. But just in terms of the actual, I guess, story that's being told, a battle where, you know, the good guys get their asses kicked across the channel is not something that is typical war film fodder. I mean, the most iconic war films of all time, like a Saving Private Ryan. I mean, one, involve a lot of American American troops coming into battle and saving the day and and two also involve wins and I don't think Dunkirk is a traditional win although a miracle and certainly uh, I think the end of the film is stating that actually this this is something to be uh, 
proud and and her and you know this is a, this is a proud heroic feat that this happened um but it's a it's almost like it, it it's a victory by necessity less by oh we went out there and and kicked some ass and so i think it's it's really bold right right to like take on a movie like this and and hope that people are interested because it's a it's a movie about you know deliverance and salvation to use their words right than it is about winning and you know taking it to the nazis but guys, I guess to start with that and, and how you think that works or that's effective or however you might want to think about that, what did you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I really like this this aspect of the movie. I think it's interesting to think about, right? Because we just had the 4th of July yesterday and there's a lot of talk about like, you know, being thankful for the soldiers who, you know, gave their lives, who sacrificed, you know, years and stuff to, to fight fight for us. And I think there's some of that in the movie of just, hey, we should appreciate these people just because they were out there fighting. I mean, obviously they weren't fighting for us technically. I mean, because they're, you know, British, but they're fighting on on the Allied side. And for British people, they will watch this and, you know, uh, appreciate that aspect of it. But I think he does a couple of things that like help to emphasize the heroism of the story. One is that he focuses on like individual heroes, right? Like I think that's where um, uh, like Mark Rylance's character comes in, right? Because the, these people, he, he focus on, focuses on individuals who are doing more traditional acts of heroism, I guess is what I should say. Like, uh, you know, the fact that all of these civilians are willing to take their boats out here, risk getting, you know, shot out in the middle of the ocean by, planes or something. I mean, you know, they didn't know what they were going into. Um, and to, to sail across here to France and to rescue as many people as they could just in the name of, hey, this is for our country. That's heroism. When you talk about Kenneth Branagh at the end of the movie saying, hey, I'm going to stay behind for the French, right? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to leave. Like I'm going to, I'm going to wait here and try and help the French and rescue the French as well. Um, that's heroism. When you think about Tom Hardy's character, right? The fact that he you know, he, he makes a, a huge sacrifice because like you said earlier, Jay, right? He, he has to, you know, bring his plane down on the beach. And then, you know, you see that awesome shot of the Germans coming up over the hill there at the end of the movie to, to capture him. And you know, that he, he, you know, who knows what became of this person? I mean, again, probably not a real person, but, um, you know, there are probably people like him, right. That, that, um, maybe sacrifice their own freedom, um, to, to rescue a, a lot more people. So I think that works. And then I also think that framing uh, this as like one episode in a longer war, right? Like, which is what he does at the end, I think with Churchill's speech and why that works really well is that he he's kind of saying, look, we may have lost the battle, but we're gonna win the war, right? That's, you have this, you know, very swelling, like patriotic, like we're, st we're here, you know, to fight. We're, we're not giving up yet, blah, 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 that Churchill, um, you know, it is, saying combined with the footage of you know the the soldiers being rescued um and and it works because you know right that the allies end up winning the war right that the british are on the winning side at the end of the war and you see i think i think what the movie really accomplishes is you see that hey if if this rescue effort doesn't happen right if all of these british soldiers aren't rescued from dunkirk I mean, I'm not going to say the allies wouldn't have won the war. That's probably a little bit of an overstatement, but this was huge, right? This was a huge moment in the war because this could have been a moment when, you know, Britain and France were down and out, right? These uh, valued members of that, the allied uh, forces were um, really taken out. And instead yeah. it, it became this motivating moment for, for Britain at least to, to like, you know, 
kick it into second gear to say, hey, we've still the, the war is still out there to be won. And they did win the war. So, yeah, I mean, America I think, wasn't even in the war yet in 1940. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I really like that he he looks at this again because it's it's not traditional, right? It is, um, you know, it, it is the, they are fleeing. They are literally fleeing the enemy. They are literally running away. That is what the whole movie is about. Um, but I think that there are there is a lot of heroism involved and and ultimately um you know all all of these individual moments and these individual figures i think had had a huge role in uh in winning the war in the end which was obviously a good thing yeah i mean who's to say though that if we would if the allied forces would have won the war because that's 300 yeah, to four hundred thousand people on that beach like that's yeah most of the fighting population probably for you know, what was left, at least for France and Britain. I don't know. Jay, what did you think of this particular story being told out of all the ones that Nolan could have been telling? Well, I mean, you know, like we've touched on, like it's very atraditional, right? And I think, you know, again, trying to put myself back in the mindset of the first viewing that you are kind of, you know, you focus on the more traditional acts of heroism, Scott Harvey, like you pointed out, but ultimately, you know, the characters you've been following, you know, the most, and, uh, you know, at least to me, you know, you have the most invested in the land soldiers, you know, you you really don't walk away with this set like you you almost feel like you know what harry Styles says right you know like how like how i don't remember his exact words right but you know basically like how are we going to face them like this is a, you know we're an embarrassment like you know that sentiment basically and i think i i, th I think it's easy to feel that way because you know the, again like you know like we've said there is no triumphant moment um but that last you know scene with the newspaper and the you know the people with the welcome you know the handing the beers and the in the train car, like, you know, it, it, all of that, like, I, I think essentially like, you know, makes it work. I, I think without that, it, you know, it is a little bit like, okay, we still do have our traditional acts of heroism, but like, you know, the characters you were mostly focused on, you know, like, oh, they, you know, they, they got away. Like, yeah. Like the the people who, who you expect to be doing the acts of heroism in this film aren't necessarily the ones doing it. I mean, Tom Hardy, mm -hmm. yeah, he's a fighter pilot. Maybe you expect him to do some sort of act of heroism, but like it's the soldiers on the ground in these films that, that give you these, you know, moments of, of high heroism and saving the day, et cetera. But no, it, instead it's the, it's the civilians undocking their boats, right. Who aren't fighting in the war in a traditional sense that are the ones who really save the day. And, and even that itself, right. Maybe to your point, James, like is the non-traditional element of it. Like the people who are supposed to be the heroes need, need to be saved by someone. Yeah, and, you know, again, like, just, just thinking, you know, like, you know, a lot of these war movies we've seen, you know, those soldiers would typically have that, like, giant moment of glory, whereas, like, you know, I, to me, like, you know, that, that moment, not necessarily of glory, but just of, like, you know, like, oh, like, you know, we're, like, the heroes have arrived, just, you know, the moment when the cavalry arrives, and when all the ships, yeah. you know, pull up, like, you know, what do you see? Home, like, that moment, spine tingling, and, like, you know, you don't get, really, in my mind, like, anything like that from the land soldiers until the very end when, you're reading the newspaper and, you know, again, like Nolan finds a way to just like really make that part of it work. Like you don't walk away just thinking, Oh, the whole story should have been about the ship captain or Tom Hardy's pilot. Like, you know, it, that, that ending just, you know, actually makes the land soldiers piece of it work for me. Like without it, it, it doesn't work at all in my opinion. Um, but again, you know, Nolan being Nolan, he, you know, brings it at the end and, you know, just ties it all together really well. Yeah, and I and I think that going back to something that that we talked that Scott and I were talking about earlier about the kind of lack of emotion that you we might have felt in the film the first time that we watched it, I think one of the, one part of that is that like you are sort of conditioned to expect certain types of emotion 
to come out of certain types of film. And with war films, you're expected like the emotional moments to be like this great sacrifice to, you know, persevere over the enemy and things like that. And, you know, win, win the day, et cetera. And the emotional moment that moments that these film gives you by like is rooted in the fact that the story that's being told, like that outcome and that emotional payoff just can't happen in the story. Like that's not what this story is about. And so by the end of the film, when you're, you know, when that, emo when the emotional moment that the film intends to give you is happening, you have to really be open to the fact that of like reorienting yourself to like, it's not a defeat of, you know, the enemy that is going to give you like the, um, like the reward and the emotional payoff of the sacrifice that these people had. It's the fact that they survived. It's the fact that they didn't completely lose that gives you the emotional payoff and understanding the sacrifices that are made to fight another day, right? Like it's easy. I feel like I've, I mean, because I was, I mean, I watched Hamilton yesterday. It's like, it's easy. It's easy to, to uh, die, but it's a lot harder to live. Right. And, and so like taking that element of it and thinking about that in, in this movie is real. I think it's really interesting, right? Cause that's, that's what it's telling you is that it's a lot harder to live in this instance. It's a lot harder for these soldiers to have to go back to Britain and face the fact that in their eyes they failed, but really their country still thinks that they are heroes and, and having to appreciate a different perspective and apply a different perspective and have the emotional payoff through that lens uh, is critical for the story to work, right? It's, it's critical for a story like Dunkirk to work. And, and you see how easy it would have been to give up too, right? When you, when you think about all of these, these, people went through just to survive and get back to to their country like at the end of the movie you know you'd be you'd be forgiven for feeling like okay well they earned their uh service or like they did they their, their time beer. and yeah they, they, they did their time and and that's it but you know the reality is these soldiers probably had to go right back out you know get shipped right back out and and you know fight again and fight for how, who knows how many more years after this um yeah. and, and so i think that that is part of it as well that the, the many of these people were were willing to not only to go through all of this, but then to to get back out there and you know and, and risk going through it all again. Yeah, I mean, even in the context of this film, right? They have to get off this train and think about the fact that forget about being shipped back out. They're about to have to defend their home mm -hmm. from from the attacking enemy, and you know the I mean the eventual battle for Britain that sort of happened, but maybe not to the extent that they thought it that the British maybe thought that it would happen in terms of an invasion and things like that. But yeah, it's a really different type of story than you'd expect and, and a different story than 1917, right? Like there is this idea of that 1917, just to compare it again, is about, it's not about like getting this critical piece of information to these people who will then win a battle. It's about stopping a battle from even happening because they're going to lose. And so it's recal. I mean, it's the whole point of Benedict Cumberbatch's character in that film is to tell you like, it's too late. We've already started. We can't turn back now just to be told to go again tomorrow. Um, and, and I think that it's interesting that two of, you know, two phenomenal war films are, although very, they are very different ultimately in their ambition because it's a story about two people, really one person, even 1917 and an ensemble cast here. But yeah, it's really interesting that the that these I think two two of my two of the most powerful war movies that I found for different reasons, maybe are telling these non-traditional stories. And maybe that maybe that says something. Yeah. All right. So the next thing I want to talk about is something that I alluded to earlier and briefly started to talk about, and that is the German soldiers or the lack thereof uh, in the film. You know, they you see obviously you see their bullets whistling past you know, uh, Fionn Whitehead's character, Tommy, at the beginning of the film and, and killing several of the people he was with at the time. You certainly see the German fighter 
fighter planes and you see and you know the u-boats are there but it's like this this like ghost of of german soldiers and you see them at the end coming over the hill to take tom hardy's character and they're just always constantly there in the background lurking just around the next corner just under the water just across the horizon but you never see them and i and obviously that is a very intentional choice by chris nolan and i wonder what you guys think about this jay we'll go to you first this time why do you think that Chris Nolan did this? And do you think that it worked well and, and contributed more to this movie than just showing the Germans, you know, blatantly on screen in these in these small moments where it would be appropriate? I mean, I think it does work well because of something you said earlier, Scott, about how, you know, it, it you know, I, I think it works better to have time be the villain in this movie than the actual soldiers. And I mean, maybe this is just my opinion, but generally I feel like when you're trying to portray, you know, like Nazis on screen, like it's, it's just hard to do because there's this weird line you have to walk, right? Of like, you know, these were soldiers involved in like one of the most horrific events in human history. Yeah. And like, you know, how do you, how do you put them on screen without being like overly, you know, campy? Like, you know, like, ah, like, you know, those like terrible Nazis, but at the same time, like, you, like, you know, like there's, there's no, I wouldn't say there's no way. I think it's just really hard to, you know, do in a way that either doesn't feel like overly campy or overly, I don't even know what the other side of it is, right? Like where it's just, it's not conveying the the severity, you know, enough by just making them look like regular old soldiers, right? Like I think, I think the, the inclusion just makes like, like it opens you up for like, you know, speculation or like, I mean, you know, just criticism, I guess, on like how they were portrayed. But, you know, not only do I think you avoid that by just not putting them on, I think, you know, it, it, they work well, you know, as like, as you described, like as a ghost, because, you know, at the end of it, like, you know, it really, it, it does feel like time is the thing that's going to take them out more than the actual like soldiers themselves, even though you do see their bullets flying through and their boats under the water and whatnot. You know, I, I think it works. And I, I think, you know, for Nolan, like, it, you know, you, like I said, you just escape having to like, you know, put them on screen and like, like deciding how to put them on screen. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that even going further than that, like he is like so committed to not even referencing them. I'm not sure if any characters say that. I'm sure one of the characters or two of the characters yeah, say Germans. I think it is mentioned a couple times. Yeah, in, in the film, but in the prologue, when you're getting this sort of introduction, that's the, of like text on screen. He doesn't even call them the Germans. He calls them the enemy. The enemy. Yeah, yeah and I think that like, that contributes to it as well. And it is this. It is just like this specter that's constantly. It's like fear, like the fear that is ingrained in the in the audience is like fear of fear, right? It's not like, it's like fear of this, of these like horrible things just around the corner that we're not naming, we're not showing you, but they're there and you know it and you're afraid of them. Uh, Scott, what, what do you think of this choice? Yeah, I mean, and what you're saying right there is that there's a real suspense, right? Because like, you know, there, there's this ticking clock element as we've talked about it. And, yeah. you know, because of that, there's the sense that the Germans could show up at any time, right? Like we, we don't know, like it, when, while they're all sitting here on the beach, right? Like who's to say that the Germans aren't just gonna like come right over the beach and just massacre all of them right there on the beach. Like that, that could easily happen. And I think the fact that, you know, the fear of the unknown sometimes again is worse than, uh, or, you know, sits with you more than, than fear of the known. I also think, right, that like kind of what we were talking about before that, he, he is so committed. There's this idea that like history is told by the winners. Right. And he's so committed, I think, to to, to convincing the audience. Right. That the British are the winners here. Right. Like maybe they they had to flee. Maybe that, you know, they uh, lost this battle or whatever. But um, 
what they did was heroic. They survived, and because they survived, they ended up winning winning the conflict in the end. And so I think by by framing this as, hey, this is not the German story, right? Like I think that that is a, a main part of it is, hey, look, we're not we're not trying to tell the story of the Germans in any way here. This is we we want to focus this solely on you know the, these British soldiers, uh, at, uh, you know, in various locations. Um, yeah, it's, and, a, it's like some sort of existential threat more than right. uh, to, to your point about being unknown threats. Yeah, yeah we, we, wa we wanted to be clear to you that these guys are heroes. These guys achieved a victory. And so we're not going to show you the literal victors, I guess, in, in the battle for Dunkirk. Um, and so I think that's part of it. I also think it, you know, it strips some of the like nationalism out of this. Right. Like, I think that. Um, Yes. Okay. Like we, we understand these guys are English. There's, you know, when the boats come in, they're waving the flags. We have Churchill's speech at the end and stuff like that. But I think in, in war movies, a, a lot of times nationalism and, um, you know, what, what country you're from and everything can, can affect maybe your per perception of, um, of things. And I think by stripping all of that out of it and saying, Hey, this is not a tale of the British versus the Germans. This is a tale of, heroes versus villains, right? Like, uh, I think that, um, but by, you know, not showing the German soldiers is part of that, I think, because um, like Jay was talking about it, it, it's hard to show people wearing the, the Nazi colors and, and to not have, you know, like this instant, like, villainy right there like i i don't know like you know i just think about like it's it's hard not to have like a hans landa character or something uh when you when you're when you're portraying nazis on screen but um and, and so i think by, by stripping the nationalism out of it right again he forces you to focus on like this story of heroes and that's ultimately i think what he what he wants you to focus on and the the fact that they were from england is not really the most important part of it at all yeah I think that's, or that the enemies were from Germany. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because they are just they are just the enemy. It is the enemy, like yeah. I was saying, it's the sort of like existential threat more than one that's ev that as ever really materializes in, except for in like I guess the briefest moments with the fighter pilots and the torpedoes from the U boats, things like that. They only they only rear their ugly heads very briefly, and then they submerge again under under the water or over the over the horizon. And it works. Like, I don't know if I have any more to add that you guys haven't already said. It's something that is a really interesting choice, but it keeps your attention uh, laser focused on the people that it's supposed to be focused on and also sharing their dread about, oh, who knows when we're going to see the Germans, right? Because that's what all all of them are afraid of. Like literally everyone, you know, land, sea, air, they're all afraid of when they will when they will come in into contact, you know, with the enemy. And you get to share that threat by never get, you get to share that dread by ne also never seeing the enemy. Like you're right in their shoes, it fully immerses you in the experience that they're having. And so that's, you know, the reason why it works so well in my mind. All right. The kind of the last thing before we talk about the finale of the film is the choice to use such little dialogue. I mean, usually I was reading a little bit about this. Chris Nolan's scripts range from anywhere from like, you know, 130 to 160 pages long. And this one was 75 pages. This is a 75 page script that, that feels it's mostly probably stage direction. I'd imagine it's very minimal dialogue and what's going on here. And I, I, I even read that there was an, you know, earlier on, like he originally conceived this film in the mid nineties, but didn't want to make it until he had experience making large action films, uh, which he managed to make a few of before this one. And when he was reimagining it and redesigning, it, he, he really considered completely improvising the whole movie. 
like not even having uh like a real script with di- like dialogue things like that and his uh his wife Emma Thomas and his producing partner convinced him that that wouldn't work um so he did write a 76 page script guys but Scott you've talked about this already so why don't we go to Jay first like it, it just feels kind of right to have so little dialogue I mean I feel like so much of the experience that we're talking about here is kind of dependent on the fact that these characters are not like eulogize like eulogizing or or being very loquacious I mean maybe maybe you could see maybe there's some big rousing speeches maybe from someone like a like a Kenneth Branagh like you could imagine him doing that but you don't see that on screen and I think it works well enough that he's also pretty terse uh Jay what do you think about this yeah I mean I think it works I I really like the way uh Scott you described it you know at the beginning as you know or like you described someone else described you pointed out you know it was like a what a war movie with nothing but the verbs um yeah i mean i i think it really works i think you know the the tension the suspense you know is is compounded by things like the score and just like you know what's what's like literally happening you know i don't i don't need the soldiers to be you know giving like rallying cries or you know being overly morbid about how they're all going to die you know i I think everything that you know and like, you know, all the stuff we've already talked about between the score and, you know, what's happening and the timelines, you know, it, it, it all just serves to give me the suspense. I don't really think I, I need anything else to, I have nothing else to really gain, you know, from added dialogue. You know, I, I already know, you know, from, from everything we've talked about that, you know, we've, we've got our good guys and we, you know, we need to get them out and time is running out. Yeah, because it, it, maybe there is a place in this film for some rousing speech about guys, we just got to get across the channel and survive, but Really, if you think about the shame that these people are are facing, returning, returning to their, you know, returning to Britain with, you know, with essentially, you know, their, you know, tails between their legs, you have to think about how there's really not a place for a rousing speech to tell you, like, you know, you need to just get across the channel so we can go home to the people and be embarrassed about and be ashamed of what we did. Until the end of the movie, right? Like Churchill's right. speech is the, is the rousing speech. Once they have actually accomplished exactly. that, then they can change their focus to, hey, the war is still here to be won. And a rousing speech maybe is what we need, need now. And that's why he puts that in. Yeah, like it'd be weird if Fionn Whitehead is out, is out here on the beach just chatting people up, <laughs> you know, every, yeah. every day for seven days. It's like they all are in a horrible position. They know it. And they're they're all very much just wondering and fearing whether they will live to fight the next day like will will the next dive bomb kill them right from from the german fighter fighter planes and in the in the air they're doing a job and on the boat they all are you know resigned to the job that they're going to have to do going across the channel so it's really kind of this all like you like in unison this idea of we know what we need to do we don't need to talk about it um, the, the time, the time for planning and talking things through is over. We got it. We have to go and do it. And that's the story that's being told. So I really appreciate that. And going on to that ending, Scott, that you're just talking about, I, I do want to talk about that because this feels like the critical point where for me, where it's like, all right, the thing that I felt was missing the first time I watched this film was the emotional part. We've talked about this a bunch. I don't want, I don't need to rehash that too much. And it's the ending that changes that for me. It's the ending, the last five, 10 minutes of the film, probably just five, honestly, it's pretty, it's not that long. Um, of when they make it to the train yard and they board the train, etc. That feels packed with emotion for me, guys. So Scott and I have already talked about it a little bit already. Jay, did maybe it was just us? Like maybe you felt the emotion in this scene from the first time you watched it because it seemed like you had less of an issue with that. Maybe the first time you saw it, I don't know. But uh, what do you feel about the finale of the film? Whether it's talking about the emotion of it or talking about just how the movie ends, whatever you prefer to talk about. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, I, I think it, you know, it, it makes the, the, the story of land soldiers like that just much more compelling for me. I think if you remove it, you know, that their part of the story like just doesn't work for me. And like, you know, not, not that the score, my score of the movie means too much, but I think the movie would lose like, you know, at least a point, you know, if, if you just like take that out. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, like you said, like it, it does serve to like stir up the emotions, I think. You know, it, it, it did work for me, you know, as early as my first viewing, I think more so, you know, after my second and third, I, I think it is still, you know, just kind of hard to like wrap your mind around it the first time because, you know, how like atypical it is. Um, but like, you know, like I said, it 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 works and you don't, you know, I, I think to me, yeah, like you really don't get, you know, that much of a feeling for like, I'm not happy that Harry Styles made it home really, you know, given like how he, you know, tried to like, you know, uh kill or like essentially kill gibson right and like you know how he's just generally like kind of a douche like i'm not overly thrilled that guy has made it home you know until i get to this ending where it's like you know what like actually like getting home was like you know the most important thing you could have done and like you know we, we can like look past you know some of the acts of desperation that may have happened before they obviously weren't great um but you know that, that this this ending essentially gives me a way to, you know, not only be happy for the guy I would imagine to be happy for, like Theon Whitehead's character, but also for a guy like, you know, Harry Styles' character, who, you know, again, not overly rooting for you, like, you know, as like an individual, uh, but you know, thinking about how, you know, you like you you are now facing that shame, and that's probably why you know you acted the way you acted, but like, you know, surprise, like you know, you you did what you were supposed to do, and like that in itself is a win. You don't get that without the without the ending, and then yeah, the movie to me that that part of the movie at least you know is not nearly as moving without it. Scott, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think I have too much more to add. I've said a lot about the the ending so far. I'll just say, look, this is another classic Nolan ending, right? Like he he gets he he's rousing. really nailed like he's yeah. nailed the rousing like uh, rousing dialogue over like rousing music like the the music starts to crescendo as you're going into this super rousing dialogue yeah. like he, he's totally earned he's totally uh, mastered that ending and and this is another example and yeah i think uh you know i i felt i i felt more emotion at times throughout the movie but this is the moment where i think it really washes over you um and it especially did this time for me and um yeah you really you really appreciate again what the what these people were able to do and so i think that uh it's definitely the way that the movie needed to end and it would probably be a, a much less successful movie without that you know coda yeah i feel like it, it almost begs the question what's the point of the movie without the ending right like yeah it's it, otherwise it's just a, a technical masterpiece for the sake of being a te technical masterpiece there's no real emotional punch behind it which is maybe kind of how i felt before but certainly feel differently on on the second viewing so i think with that we can probably wrap things up i don't have any more to add when it comes to the ending so guys what's your favorite scene or moment from dunkirk jay we'll go with you first what do you see home you know it's a yeah. the cavalry's arrived it's 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 a crowd pleaser and you know it, it does feel a little bit silly to me like you know I, i'm guilting myself for some reason you know about like you know finding the most you know like traditional moment you know traditional like yeah he like you know war story or like hero moment to like you know say is my favorite but like you know like i said it was spine tingling it was really really good you know it was it was nice because you know you're, you're going through this movie you're following this one you know boat captain who you know is like you know answering the call but you don't really know who else is there and then all of a sudden you know 
you have so many and yeah, it, it was a really good moment. Scott, what about you? Yeah, I think because he resists those big flourishes through most through most of the movie, when they actually do come, they are so they are a lot more satisfying because of that. Um, so, I mean, I, I also really like when Tom Hardy's plane, you know, comes by and everyone starts cheering, you know, after he's he's taken out the the plane that was coming to just basically yeah, yeah um, to to kill all of them who are standing on the deck of the ship. Um, and, and so that moment's good. I mean, I love the image with. The Germans coming up over the hill again with Tom Hardy at the end. I guess I'll say the the scene in the in the beached boat when they're uh, underneath, they're hiding out, and you know, there's again, there's tremendous suspense. I think first from are they going to get shot by these Germans who are you know you, having target practice, um, and then you know, is there a, a mole? Is there a, a you know a spy within their ranks? Um, and you know, all of that, that involves Harry Styles character trying to, to root out this, this character. So I, I think that that's a really well done claustrophobic Hitchcockian sequence that works really well. Yeah. It's really funny. Cause Andrew and Bernard who plays Gibson is actually British. Like he's actually British. And then he's playing a French person. I'm like, come on, you can't just cast a French person. I know everyone else in the cast is British, but just one French person. Um, no, I joke, but yeah, it, that's a, that's a really, and probably the most intense sequence, um, of, of the film. Just if you look at a whole scene put together for me, I'm glad we're choosing all the different scenes. It seems like, so I, I'm actually going to go for a shot on, uh, the boat, which is one where one of the instances earlier on in the film that I felt a little bit of emotional weight. Cause obviously you have what happens. We haven't really talked about it very much, but Killian Murphy's character in the sort of struggle to, take the boat ends up blinding and then ultimately killing Barry, Barry Keohan's character. And you have Tom Glenn Carney's character, whose name's Peter, th this guy who is obviously very frustrated in probably the most British way. He's not really showing it, but very frustrated with Killian Murphy's um, actions and, and outburst, even though I think that if you, if you take um, Mr. Dawson, which is Mark Islands's character's perspective, he's like, He's shell-shocked, like he doesn't know what he's doing. He's traumatized, but we have to do this. Like we have to do this mission. And there's this moment later on after they, you know, they've arrived at the beach. I guess they haven't technically arrived at the beach yet, but they're taking all these people on board who have just been, you know, sort of jumped off this destroyer who's been that's been bombed and is and is sinking. And they're taking them onto the boat. And they that's this is the moment they realize that that this character of George has died in the bottom of the boat. And Killian Murphy, who'd asked before whether or not. George was going to be okay. And, and Tom Glenn Carney's Peter said, no, he's not going to be okay. And this moment, uh, Peter changes his mind and decides to tell, uh, decides to tell this, this, you know, shell shocked soldier that, uh, he's, he is going to be okay, even though he's died in the bottom of the boat. And I found that to be an extraordinary moment that I remember that happening. I remember like, if you'd asked me, does this thing happen in the movie? I would have said yes, but I, I guess it didn't have any emotional impact on me. Maybe the first time. And this time it, I think it really hit me harder, which is, uh, another sacrifice added to the list of sacrifices small and large that people are making uh in the in the film and I, th and I found that one to be a really really powerful one yeah let's put a score on it guys out of 10 what are you giving dunkirk jay 9.1 9.1 scott what about you 9.5 it's it's almost perfect it's a, it's a dynamite or film yeah uh it, it's a 10 for me not not a 10 that i take you know a great deal of pleasure and say you know this i love this film this is my favorite favorite movie ever but kind of like roma where i felt like the like that is just a absolute masterpiece of a film even if it's not one that you look back and say you know i really loved that film 
uh, but it's the it's the product that it creates and the moments that it creates, uh, whether they stick with you for a really long time or they just live in the moment. Uh, in my events, I actually think Dunkirk does stick with you longer than that. That really just creates this sort of, I don't know, I think it's almost, I mean, I think it's a perfect film. I don't really have any anything to complain about with the movie. All right, guys, let's uh, let's rank all the Nolan films. This is what we've been doing for the last nine episodes is talking about them. And now we get to tell each other how wrong we are in our lists. So who wants to go first? Any volunteers? Jay, you got it. All right, let's do it. Start, start at the bottom. Start yeah. at the bottom. All right, we've got following. Oh my God, I cannot believe you have that number. <laughs> what? Oh, but the next one's going to piss Scott Harvey off. Um, Interstellar, Insomnia, The Dark Knight Rises, Dunkirk, Inception. This is where it gets tough now, but we have Memento, Batman Begins, The Prestige, and of course, at number one, The Dark Knight. Well, you got at least two of them right. <laughs> okay. Hey, I went. Uh, I will, yeah, I will yeah, stick yeah. to this, the, although the I will say positions three through five are tough. The top yeah. and the bottom is where we're going to be agreed, I think. But yeah. um, all right, my number ten is following. My number nine, I'll, I'll hit you right back, Jay. The Prestige. You're uh, my, crazy. <laughs> oh my god. My number, eight, my number eight, Insomnia. Uh, my number seven, Inception. My number six, Batman Begins. My number five, The Dark Knight Rises. My number four, Dunkirk. My number three, Memento. My number two, Interstellar. And my number one, The Dark Knight. Good list. All right, split the uprights here, Scott. It's fine, guys. All, all I'll say is that uh, you guys both have ins- you guys got you guys both have insomnia one place too high. It's fine. Uh, number ten, following number nine, insomnia. Number eight. Okay, so I'll, before I start here, three through eight are like I could I could mix and match all of these. I think oh, sure three through eight. Uh, but where I have for now, check back with me when we do ten, and I'll probably have a different order. Uh, number eight, Batman Begins. Number seven, wow. Interstellar. Number six, Memento. Number five, The Dark Knight Rises. Number four, Dunkirk. Number three, The Prestige. Number two, Inception. And number one, The Dark Knight. So there you go, guys. A lot of, lot of head shaking. It's, it's a on... burden to be the only one who's right on this podcast. You, you, need, you need to go back and watch The Prestige with what I talked about, realizing that Christian Bale is playing two different characters the whole time. I don't think that's what's going to make I, the difference for Scott. I, it really should. It's so impressive. I can't believe you put it at ninth. but I whatever. like the movie a lot. It's a four out of five stars for me. Like I, I like the movie a lot, but compared to, compared to the rest, I think it, it falls short. Look, guys, you're comparing some. I'd say you're comparing eight of the best movies of all, of all eight of, of some of the best movies of all time. So, and, and I mean, we put in I think it has the, ahead of it. <laughs> it has the worst female characters in it, like the Prestige does. I think, like, I think that's the. I think it's the worst example of him having the the female problem. I think that's definitely true for one of those female characters, other than Ben Kirk. <laughs> I don't know about Scarlett Johansson, but uh, look, it's it's a list. I I knew that. Uh, this one is going to be more fun after we had our, you know, hearty debates on a couple of these episodes. I was, I was going to be interested to see where things shook out. Look, but like, like, like I was saying here, three through eight, like on a different day, I could have interstellar as high as three and I could have probably, you know, the procedure Dunkirk as low as like, I don't know, six, six, seven, just because for me, all of these, although maybe not the same in score or in terms of experience and you know my love for them, I think that it's, it, it's kind of, it's really hard. I think to, to separate some of these. 
Yeah, I mean, Inception being number seven is kind of crazy to me because I think that's an amazing movie. But I feel um, that about Batman Begins being eight for me. I'm like, this is crazy. That Batman yeah, I can't believe Batman Begins straight, but yeah. But when the movies in front of it are Interstellar, Memento, The Dark Knight Rises, Dunkirk, The Prestige, Inception, The Dark Knight, like, I don't know. It's a, it's a tough it's, one. It's defensible. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't really feel like I need to defend it, but it's hard. It, it, it's like tough to compare eight of these movies, I think. That's that. That's the Nolan Countdown, guys. That will put a wrap on it. Please follow our podcast on Twitter at, at MediaPlugPods. Subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the episode notes. And don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash MediaPlugPods. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, though, that's really fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcast, where we'd appreciate if you rated and reviewed, as well as subscribed and shared, so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. And with that, we really appreciate all of you for listening to any or all parts of our Nolan Countdown miniseries. Don't forget to check out all our other podcasts in the Some Like It's Scott feed, including our latest episode of Some Like It's Scott, as well as Champ's Lunch. We won't be back next week with a brand new part in our countdown because it's over. But whenever Tenet does come out, you will certainly find the three of us reviewing it on the Some Like It's Scott uh, feed as a part of Some Like It's Scott podcast. So until then, for Scott Harvey and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.